tells a story of a wise old man who lived in the Himalayan mountains. And supposedly, periodically, this old man would venture down into the town and he would wow the villagers with his abilities and his special talents. And one of his skills, supposedly, was that he could physically tell people uh, what was in their pockets or what was in their boxes or maybe what they, he could guess what number they were thinking of kind of thing. And there were a few young boys in the town who decided they were going to prove this old man wrong. They devised this scheme that would make him look like a fool, and they decided they were going to kind of win an intellectual battle with him. And so what their plan was that when he would come down, they would get a bird, and they would hide the bird in their hands. Now, they knew that the old man would know that it was a bird in their hand, and they knew that he would get that answer right, but then they were going to ask him, is the bird dead or alive? And if the man said alive, they would crush the bird and then he would be wrong. If he said he was dead, then they would open his hands and the bird would fly away. And so one day the old man came down into the village and they found him and the boys went up to him. They had the bird in their hands behind their back and they said, okay, sir, what, what is in my hands? And he said, well, you have a bird. And the boy asked him, he said, well, is the bird dead or alive? And the wise old man looked at the boys and he said to the young boy, he said, well, the bird is as you choose it to be. And Hyatt goes on to describe the story, and he says, that's the way it is with your life and mine. He says, the power is in our hands. It's our choice what we do with it. We have been given this great gift of life. What we do with it is up to us. And, and that story has a lot of power in it, a lot of truth to it. And in Romans chapter 12, which is where we're going to be today, this is the chapter of Scripture in Romans that really Paul begins to talk about what are we going to do with our life. It's where all the doctrine and theology of Romans 1 through 11 meets this moment in Romans 12 of what we're going to do because of what we believe. It's where what we believe has to transition and lead into what we do. See, see those two things always go together in Scripture, and now Paul begins to remind us that our learning has to translate into our living. Be because of everything that Paul has said in Romans chapters 1 through 11, this teaching of the gospel, of this redemption story, this, this from death to life that has happened because of Jesus, because of all of that that we now hold in our hand, all this truth, all this gospel, now in chapter 12, Paul transitions and says, now what will you do with it? Essentially, Paul says, we hold this gift of the gospel in our hands, but what we do with it is our choice. It's what chapter 12 is all about. And so the first two verses have a whole lot of, you can have three sermons in just the first two verses. Don't worry, we're not going to do that this morning. But in the first two verses, Paul it's, it's, some people think it's the theme of the book of Romans, but he lays out this, this umbrella couple verses where he reminds us that now we have to start thinking about how we live. Because of what we believe, we now have to start thinking about what we live. This is what he says in verses 1 and 2. He says, I appeal to you, therefore. So because of everything I've said in 1 through 11, I appeal to you by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. This is your spiritual worship. 
He says, do not be conformed any longer to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your minds, that by testing you can discern what the will of God is, what is good, acceptable, and perfect. Paul reminds us in these first two verses, because of everything we've talked about in the book of Romans, we are called to present ourselves to God. If Jesus has really changed who we are, if we are no longer identified by our sin and our failure and all the things we are identified before Jesus, if we really have a new identity and a new life in Christ, then Paul says, present yourself to God. That's the only response. It's this living sacrifice is what Paul says. It's a response. And it's a response, Paul says, to the mercies of God. Paul says, because of all the theological truth of Romans 1 through 11, we should respond with sacrificing our daily life. Paul says, if you and I fully grasp and we fully understand the mercies of God, the, the, the great chasm and amount of sin that we have been forgiven, then he says we have to present ourselves to God. If that's what we believe, then this is how we have to live. In fact, uh, the ESV, which I'm reading out of this morning, he says this is your living sacrifice. It's your spiritual worship. Uh, other translations translate that as reasonable service. And the word in the Greek, which is what the New Testament was originally written in, it's actually a Greek word, and it's logikan. And it literally means logical. That's where we get our word logical. And what Paul tells us is that the only logical, reasonable, the only common sense response to all that Jesus has done for us is to give him everything. <clears throat> Paul says that once you have viewed God's mercy, once we fully grasp the life that we've been given, the death that we've left, the sin that's been wiped away, the redemption that's happened, all of Romans 1 through 11, he says, when you fully see the mercies of God, then anything less than total and complete sacrifice of yourself doesn't make any sense. Paul says, in view of God's mercy, it is illogical to not live for him. Paul says, if you really understand the mercies of God, the only thing that makes any sense, the only reasonable service, is to give your life to him. And, and, and what Paul is indicating for you and I this morning is, is if, if Jesus does not move us to change our life, if it doesn't kind of soften or melt the ice over your heart or your soul, then you and I have to ask ourselves, do we really understand the gospel and what Jesus did? If you and I this morning do not have a passion or any interest in living a sacrificial, holy life for God, it might be because we don't fully understand the mercies of God. It might be because we don't fully understand what we've been given through Jesus. See, Paul reminds you and I this morning that a clear focus on Jesus is the key to thinking rightly about ourselves, and it should be the goal of our spiritual practice. Paul says if you're a follower of Jesus, if you believe everything we've said in Romans 1 through 11, then the only thing that makes sense is to give your life to Jesus. Your every day, every moment, every place, daily life. Bible commentator Sam Shoemaker says to be a Christian means to give as much of myself as I can to as much of Jesus as I know. 
Paul says we're to present ourselves to God. That, that word present, it means once and for all. It, it commands a definite, a definitive commitment to Jesus. It's the same word we would use when a bride and a groom commit themselves to each other on their wedding day. It's a one-time public commitment that is made forever. It's a once and for all I do. And Paul says the only logical response to the mercies of God is a once and for all commitment to Jesus. To be a living sacrifice, to be fully at God's disposal, that's an active thing. Paul's calling us to an active life for Jesus that's willing to obey God in anything, in everything, in any and every area of our life. That, that word transform that Paul says, he says you do this by the transforming of your mind. It's the same word that the Bible uses to, that translates transfigure. It, it's a Greek word, metamorpho, which means metamorphosis, which means a change from inside. Paul says that we can be changed from the inside to be more like who Jesus created us to be. It, it's the same word that Paul uses in 2 Corinthians 3 when he says we all with an unveiled face beholding the glory of the Lord, are going to be transformed, transfigured, changed from the inside into the same image from one degree of glory to another. This comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. See, see the Christian life is a response to what we believe. It is a daily giving over of our life and our bodies and our minds to the obedience to God. It's motivated by our view of God's mercy through his son. And as you and I spend time in God's word daily, as we sit in God's presence daily, we become more and more like him, not because we improve, but because our view of Jesus grows. And it leads us to respond. In Colossians 3, Paul said, let the word of Jesus dwell in you. Let it teach you and admonish you with all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in our hearts to God. <clears throat> See, Paul tells us that because of everything we've talked about in the book of Romans, you and I are called to present ourselves to Jesus every day. We're called to be holy, which means set apart. But Paul reminds us that we're not just set apart from something, we're set apart to someone. Paul says that it's not enough to be set apart from the world. He says, more accurately, you and I are set apart and devoted and offered to God. Paul essentially tells you and I this morning, given what we know about what Jesus did for us, all the stuff that we've read about in Romans 1 through 11, forgiveness of our sins, our penalty of death has been paid in full, redemption and restoration into who God created us to be, a new identity in Jesus, sin forgiven and buried once and for all, a new life. Oh, I can keep going on and on, but we remember you were here the last few weeks. Because of all of that, Paul says, present yourself to God. He says it's the only thing that makes any logical sense. And so church, let me gently ask you something that's been convicting of me the last two weeks as I've studied this. Given all that you and I know about what Jesus did for us, the mercies of God, and given what all of us know he has forgiven in us, 
And given what we know it took to set you and I free, in view of the mercies of God, what have you been offering to God? In view of what Jesus offered for us, what have we been presenting to God? So I'm going to pause for a moment before we go on. And I want to pray. I want to ask God to help us be reminded of what Jesus has done. And I want to ask him to help us to give him everything that he deserves. Let's do that. Jesus, we come to you this morning and we're reminded that you gave everything for us. That you are the one who has set us free. You are the one who has forgiven our sin and our debt. You are the one who paid the price so that we could have eternal life. That everything we have is because of you, it's in you, and it's through you. And yet, Jesus, this morning I recognize that so very often you do not get everything of me. And so, Jesus, would you give us a clearer view of your mercy so that we could more fully understand why we should give back to you. May you help us see you clearly so we can be open to you changing us permanently. Jesus, we ask this in your name. Paul goes on in the next five verses. He says, For by the grace that has been given to me, I say to everyone among you not to think of yourselves more highly than you ought to think, but think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function. So we, though we are many, we are one body in Jesus, and individually members one of another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let's use them. In proportion, if prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in serving, if one teaches in his teaching, and he goes on and on, whatever your gift is, he says, use it in a way that God has gifted you. Paul reminds us that the only logical response to everything we know about Jesus is to present our life to him. And then Paul says one of the ways that we do that is by using what God gave us for his glory. Paul tells us that you and I, as created, creations of God, as children of God, we have each been given a particular set of good works that God created us to do. Each of us here this morning has been gifted and wired and created in a unique way that is specifically what God wants and needs for his church to grow and for his kingdom to come. This text emphasizes for you and me that our faith, it's a corporate thing. It's a group thing. Our faith is certainly personal, right? Like you and I each have a personal relationship with Jesus. I'm not saved because of your faith and you're not saved because of mine. But our faith is never meant to be individualistic. It's personal, but it's never meant to be isolated, you and I have been called, Paul says, to love each other and to use our gifts for the good of the entire body. <clears throat> Paul tells us that the ways that you are gifted, the ways that you are, the things that you're good at, the things that you're passionate about, the things that you're naturally wired to do, you've been given those specifically for the body of Christ. <clears throat> Your unique person fits exactly where God has placed you in exactly the season he's placed you in. Bible commentator Scott McKnight says everyone, everyone is a gift and a contribution to the body of Christ. 
There are no losers and there are no winners. He says there are only mutual donors. That all of us donate what we have to the body of Christ. First Peter said it, Peter, he said it this way in 1 Peter chapter 4, as each has received a gift, and a, a gift, use it to serve one another as good stewards of God's varied grace. Use it to serve one another as good stewards, as good caretakers of God's varied grace. Church, you and I have been given specific gifts, specific abilities, talents, passions, and they're to be used to serve the kingdom of God. And for years and years and years, 25 years of ministry, I always used to talk about spiritual gifts, and for a long time I would talk about how much we miss when you don't serve and how, how we're going to be lost if you don't step up, and, and I would beg people to sign up and to do ministry, and, and I think that's still true to a certain extent. I, I don't think the body of Christ is, is fully what it was intended to be when each of us doesn't serve, but I've switched over the last few years because what I've been discovering and what God has reminded me of is while there are things and people that will miss you if you don't serve, who's really missing is us. When I don't use my gifts and my abilities for the kingdom of God, the reality is the kingdom of God will keep going. Right? Like the Bible said that even the gates of hell could not stop the kingdom of God. So I don't think God goes, oh, Justin didn't serve. Well, we are in big trouble right? But we think that sometimes, right? Like, I don't think God sits up there and goes, oh, Justin quit. Well, <laughs> I guess we'll just pack it in for the season. Hopefully he'll come back, right? So the kingdom of God can work. That's not how it works. You're valuable to God, and you're important to God, and you are needed for service in the kingdom of God. But what I've realized is that when I don't serve, when I choose to sit on the sidelines, I'm the one that misses out. I'm the one that misses this incredible opportunity that God gives you and me to impact people for eternity. God uses you, whatever your gift and whatever your talent is, to lead somebody closer to the kingdom of God. And if you don't do it, he'll find somebody else who will. And you will miss out. You get all these incredible opportunities here at Journey. That's what we've been talking about the last couple of weeks. All these opportunities to serve. And, we, and Journey does need you to serve. And Journey does need us to be involved and to use our gifts to help it grow. But here's what I'm going to tell you that you might not like to hear this morning. I didn't like to hear it when I felt somebody told me this. If you and I don't serve, Journey will be fine. But we will miss out. God has his beautiful things like, like you, you can get the opportunity to come on a weekly basis and tell some young kid who Jesus is and how he died for them. Like you get the opportunity here to serve and teach and, and be, help in a Sunday school class where kids' eternal destination changes. You get the opportunity to stand at the doors and greet people who have never set foot in church. You get the opportunity to smile and be a warm welcome to somebody who probably thinks they're not welcome at church, and you get to change their mind just by standing at the door and welcoming them. You get to come on stage if it's your gift, and you get to lead people in worship to the King of Kings. 
You, you get to stand up front if it's your gift and, and share about what communion means and the death and the burial and the resurrection and the sacrifice of Jesus. And you get to tell people who that is and what that means every week. You get to lead a small group that dives into Scripture and opens the Bible maybe with people who have never opened it. Don't miss this this morning, church. The church desperately needs you to use your gifts. But if you don't, we'll be okay. But you will miss out. You will miss out. There are countless opportunities outside the walls of Journey that God gives you to, to coach a little league team. And you get to be around students and show them how to do sports in a way that would honor God. Maybe it's, it's helping out a community organization and you get to show people how you lead with the integrity of Jesus. There's, there's a bazillion opportunities that God puts in front of you every day to expand his kingdom. And don't miss this. He has gifted you and wired you for this season in this place. You're not here by accident. God doesn't do that. If you're here in this moment and in this season of life, it's because God knew that you would fit the peace that the church needed to win the world to Christ. But many of us miss it. There's a story uh, when president-elect, way back in history, Zachary Taylor was scheduled to take office. It was on a Sunday, March 4th at noon, and Taylor was a deeply committed Christian, and he refused to be inaugurated on his day of worship. So he said, I, I can't, I'm not going to do that. Sunday's my day of worship. You're going to have to wait till Monday. <laughs> well, so he told him Monday at noon. But the Constitution actually forbade President Polk, the guy before him, to serve one extra day in office. So this left Congress with this interesting dilemma. The United States was going to experience one full day, 24 hours, without a public elected president. Some would say that might be the best 24 hours of our history. But, sorry. I really debated if I was going to use that joke, but I felt led by the Holy Spirit. Um, and so, but, but anyway, in history, the Senate had no alternative, but they had to appoint someone to serve for 24 hours from noon on Sunday till noon on Monday. So they chose a man named David Acheson, the head of the Senate. However, <clears throat> during the last week of the Polk administration, it was crazy and hectic, and Senator Acheson was exhausted, and he retired late Saturday evening, and he instructed his landlady not to awaken him for any reason whatsoever. So she followed his orders, and history tells us that Acheson slept through Sunday morning, Sunday afternoon, and all through Sunday night. Monday morning, he finally woke at 2 p.m. in the afternoon. He slept through his entire 24 hours of being the president. <laughs> Church, I think sometimes you and I have been given this incredible gift from God, and we get this incredible opportunity to serve the kingdom in this season of life. And my question would be, are you serving in this honored position? Or are you sleeping through it and missing the opportunity of a lifetime? So I want to pause one more time. I want to pray that God would remind you and me of the privilege that we get to serve the King. And that maybe He would wake us up to step out of our comfort zone and to serve and to lead for the good of the kingdom and the cause of Christ. Let's do that. Jesus, <clears throat> I say this a lot, and I, I don't know that I live it, but 
but Jesus getting to serve is, is, a, is a grace. It, it's an undeserved gift. You let us be a part of your mission and your work for the kingdom of God. Jesus, would you forgive me for the times that I've slept through that or I've complained about it or I've just said, ah, somebody else can do it. Jesus, would you remind me of the joy that comes from serving you? And would you open our eyes to where and how you want to use us in this season of life? It's in your name we ask this, Jesus. Amen. <clears throat> well, Paul finishes our portion of chapter 12 this morning. He says, let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil, hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Paul says if we really believe everything that we've learned about the mercies of God, then the only logical response is to present ourselves to God. To use what God gave us, and then to simply be Jesus to other people. Paul gives a giant list of all kinds of things here that we are called to live like, but they could all be summed up in Paul simply saying, just, just be Jesus. Just love people like Jesus loved people. Be honest like Jesus was honest. Be sincere. Be servant-hearted. Be humble. Just be Jesus to people. Paul, Paul uses a word in verse 9 where he says, be sincere. It's actually a Greek word, unhypocritos. It means be unhypocritical. Don't be phony in the way that you deal with people. Paul says, hate, literally be horrified by what God calls evil and love, or cling, give yourself fully to what God calls good. And Paul tells us to love people in a certain way. He uses a couple words here that have a very specific meaning. Paul says in this words, he says, we are to philostorge people. And what that means is it's a love that's devoted completely to someone. But he says we're to philostorge them in Philadelphia, not the city, all right? I looked that up. <laughs> but that word Philadelphia means brotherly or familial affection, what Paul is saying is that you and I should be fully devoted to each other as if we were family. That's one of the places that we get the phrase, the family of God. Paul says that you and I are to love each other in such a way that people look at us and go, those guys must be related. We're to be so devoted that it's like we're family, that we can't quit on each other. Paul says to outdo each other in honor. I love that phrase, outdo each other in honor. Treat someone as more valuable and precious than they could ever imagine. Be patient and love them actively. And what, what Paul is saying, it, there's a theological term for this, it's called relational theology. 
And the idea isn't new at all. It's very, very biblical. What it means is that when you and I begin with a right belief and a right relationship with God, then it leads us to a right relationship with everybody around us. What we believe leads to how we live. In Galatians chapter 2, Paul says, I've been crucified with Jesus. I don't live anymore. It's Jesus that lives in me. And now I live a life in the flesh. I live this fleshly life by faith in Jesus, the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself up for me. Because of what I know to be true about Jesus, and because I know of what is true about me because of Jesus, then the only logical response is to live like Jesus. Church, I wonder what would happen. Like, like what would happen if you and I started living out the principles of Romans? Like, Romans talks a lot about being peacemakers. Paul, Paul says, do everything you can to promote harmony. Romans talks about being devoted to God's Word on a daily basis. It talks about outdoing one another in love and honor. It talks about not being combative and argumentative. What, what would happen if we started living out the principles of what we actually say we believe? Well, I can tell you what will happen. Because you can read about it in the book of Acts. Christians in the first century lived this way. They were humble and quick to give credit to others and lift other people up instead of themselves. They, they devoted themselves to God's Word every day. <clears throat> they sat at His feet daily. They opened their homes and they shared their possessions with anybody who needed it. They promoted unity instead of division. They encouraged instead of complained. They believed the best in other people, even when it didn't make sense, and they gave them the benefit of the doubt instead of assuming the worst. They used their gifts and their talents to build up the church and bring people to Jesus. They loved people genuinely. They outdid one another in showing honor. They lived in such a way that anybody that looked at them and goes, man, Jesus has to be the most important thing in their life. And God turned the world upside down. Thousands of people came to Jesus on a daily basis. God took people in the early church who lived this gospel-centered life that showed without a doubt that Jesus was the most important thing to them, and he turned the world on its head. And so church, my last question this morning as the band comes <clears throat> is why couldn't God do that again? I mean, seriously, why, why couldn't God do that again? Because, because I look at that equation, <clears throat> and it's the same God, right? <laughs> like the God of the book of Acts isn't different than the God of 2023, right? It, it's the same God. And, and I look back at the early church, and as far as I can understand, the people in the early church, the world in the early church, the culture in the early church, they had the same problem. People didn't know God, and they lived apart from God. Well, that's the same problem we have today, right? It's the same God and the same problem. Well, that means there's only one part of that equation that must be different. It must be his people. And church, I, I don't like that answer. <laughs> but I haven't been able to find another logical one.
If it's the same God and the same problem, then what must have changed since the book of Acts is God's people. A reporter once asked an insightful question when interviewing a woman from the Boston Philharmonic Orchestra. He said, how does it feel getting a standing ovation one night and then the next morning reading a negative review in the newspaper? And this was her response. She said, you know, over time I've learned not to pay attention to the applause of the crowd and I've learned to not pay attention to the disapproval of the critics. She says, I've actually learned that I'm only looking for the approval of the conductor. She said, after all, the conductor is the only person who really knew how I was supposed to perform anyway. See, church, that that opening illustration, I like Michael Hyatt a lot, but he actually gets it wrong. We have free will, and it is our choice how we live. But church, if you're here and you're a follower of Jesus, it's not your life. And it's not mine to do with what I want. It's Jesus' life. He paid for it. Romans 1 through 11 tells us that. It's Jesus' life. He's the only one. And church, let me tell you, he's the only one who knows how you and I are supposed to live it. It's his life. The only question left is who are you and I going to live for? Please stand and sing with us as we prepare for communion.